good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're hitting the rewind button on the week's local news, looking at it through a regional lens. Joining us today are Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor of the Providence Journal, and radio and TV commentator Arnie Arneson on the line from New Hampshire. Welcome back, everybody. Hi, folks. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, been a Robert, long time. Uh, oh, good time, Arnie. <laughs> uh, Robert, I'm starting with you. Uh, Governor Chafee. Let me call my lawyer. <laughs> 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 ha, ha, ha. Governor Chafee has decided to uh, really face down the U.S. Supreme Court in appealing a decision, um, uh, a, a, a criminal For case. Person, yeah, yes. Who's charged with murder and a holdup. Uh, yeah, he's being very principled about this, even though the, whether the law gives him the right to keep this guy in custody in Rhode Island to prevent him from being transferred to federal authority, where he could you know, be conceivably be executed under federal law. There's a real question as to whether the governor is confusing law and policy. Certainly the law, Rhode Island does not have the death penalty for state offenses, but this is apparently under a federal offense, among other things. So the feds want him. The the U.S. attorney here uh, is trying to get custody, uh, but the governor is fighting it. You know, it's going to be interesting here because obviously this is going to be a state's rights case to the Absolutely, Supreme Court. Absolutely, in a very interesting way, by a, in this case, by a liberal governor, you know, former former Republican, of course, we all know, who feels very strongly about this. I think he's... You know, he doesn't. He doesn't reap any political benefits from this. Uh, the uh, the alleged murderer is obviously not popular, and it's uh, sort of a gruesome shooting case. And uh, you know, I think that if you took a poll, the majority of people in Rhode Island would oppose the governor on this. But as in some other controversies, the governor kind of goes his own way. I have two thoughts on it. I look at the fact that the U.S. First Circuit's uh, Court of Appeals voted three to two, so at least two judges agreed with him. Yeah. yeah so right, if nothing, yeah. it was it was a That's very right. close. It was a yeah. divided court. So I think he has every reason to say, you know what? If it had been five zip, then I probably have no leg to stand on. But with a three-two vote, that really does suggest that maybe this should be a case of first impression for the United States Supreme Court. And frankly, I think here's what I would do: I would contact the bishops, the cardinals, and the Vatican and ask them what they think. Well, because that's interesting. Of course, the, the Catholic Church, at least around here, opposes. The, I think it does universally, but certainly around here, they oppose the death penalty, as exactly. does uh, as does the governor. But I think, mm-hmm. it, as Paul said at the beginning, it's a, it's sort of a state's federal uh, mm-hmm. uh, case, and it's very very interesting how this thing is going to play out. I'm assuming this is going to get up to the U.S. Supreme, so hear it yeah. and uh, make a judgment. And if they rule in the governor's favor, which I sort of think they won't. But if they do, you could have similar situations popping up. Now, you know, what's interesting about this, too, you know, Governor Chafee, I remember the holiday time we were talking about how he kind of fell backwards into a controversy over the Christmas tree. Yeah, but this is yeah, one that clearly he's thought out. I mean, he this is an issue he, he must have known. He'd get a lot of heat for it, and he's taken uh, a principled stand. And it's interesting, you know, I looked it up, the, the death penalty was abolished in Rhode Island in 1984, but they hadn't executed anyone since 1852. So this would yeah. be a big change of, of action. Uh, and the other point I want, there's been no death penalty year to the mid since the mid 19th century when I think someone was I, I can't remember all the details somebody but, was uh, killed uh, executed by sort of wrongly and so I think in general the public around here kind of likes the the death penalty ban and in this case this Mr. Plo the the alleged murderer is particularly unpopular, and a lot of people are frustrated with what they see as the governor's quirkiness. He gets involved in this kind of right. thing, and you know the economy stinks, and they think they should be spending time on that. Sort of like the last year when he when he jumped all over the gay rights situation, and he wanted to have illegal aliens have driver's licenses, and, you know. What's yeah. interesting here, though, is that, as Paul said, this is really a states' rights question. Yeah, yeah. And this court, this Supreme Court, tends to understand and be very sympathetic to states' rights. And while this is about right. the death penalty, let's remember Arizona and all those other states yeah, that are coming yeah. in about the immigration laws. The immigration and again, law, it's, yeah. it, again, it's a very similar parallel thing. While it is something that seems a little more emotional because we're talking death penalty, the immigration issue is a pretty emotional issue as well. So I think it's perfectly appropriate that 
that he test that concept with the United States Supreme Court, and it makes a well, lot of sense given the nature of this court. I think the tricky thing is it's a federal statute uh, which applies to his right. alleged crime. And it's a federal it's a little, statute yeah, with the immigration. Yeah. You bet. But it's a little, and a little the bit question, of, There is a question, you know, how do you enforce these yeah. things, application? Yeah. It does feel like a little bit of theater, though, because the New York Times had an editorial about this uh, – uh, the other day, and they pointed out that, that yeah. it's been nine years since uh, there's been a federal execution, uh, and in, in general. So it's not yeah. even transferring to federal, even though the feds have not removed the possibility of the death penalty. Uh, typically, they haven't gone for it. And, and uh, in the last decade, I guess, uh, according to the Times, uh, federal juries have, have gone two to one uh, in favor of life sentences instead of the death penalty. So yeah. they might even arrive in the same place anyway. This yeah, is the week for political right. theater, I guess. Well, here's my question. Um, given the, the your, many of your comments about this uh, being a state's rights issue uh, and your thought that he's likely going to lose, what does he lose politically by losing? I think he seems feckless if he loses on this. Uh, it's... It's a sort of selection of issues. The big issue, of course, here is the economy. I think it's a little bit misleading because this place is so tiny. The terribleness of the economy is its not like saying the terribleness of a big state. But I think i think he'd be accused of wasting time. Mm. Okay. And I think being kind I think... of quirky and, you know, Don Quixote and all that stuff. Some people admire that a lot, but I think my my sense from the my associations with the public is the majority of people think it's he should be spending time on something else. And what's interesting is whether he wins or loses the court case, I, I think he loses this uh, in terms of the court of public opinion because, as yeah. Bob pointed out, if you took a poll, most Rhode Islanders would probably say that he's he's not in touch with what they want. They don't want to be spending this time and energy on this. So it, it really almost doesn't matter what happens hmm. ultimately in the courts. That's, he's politically put his neck out there. And the guy, of course, has been convicted in the public, you know, in the public uh, mind. You know, he's already guilty. All right. Well, moving on uh, to you, Arnie. Uh, There was much discussion here in Massachusetts about the whole main kerfuffle about the Sanford School Committee having discussions about changing the name of the mascot, which was Redskins. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's... You keep hearing over and over again for people that, you know, have been using that team name for generations, they never meant to insult. And I believe that. I really do believe it. The problem is they did insult. And um, I, I it's went a learning to curve. such a place. Yes. <laughs> which was actually founded as a school for uh, Indians. At least that was sort of the scam to get funding for it. And, you know, they, they would always say that Dartmouth College, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, and it, well, it, it, and it's it's a learning curve. And so you know, yeah. I I understand. I'm sympathetic with the history. I understand that people didn't mean it, but now they recognize that words have meanings. That words hurt. And you know what? Then change the word because you know what? You don't live and die with the term redskin. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't make the team stronger. It doesn't make the team better. It doesn't really influence anything. It's just been there for a long time, and it really isn't a good thing to be there for a long time. We had a big fight in New Hampshire. There was a pond in New Hampshire, Callie, called Jew Pond. Mm, I yes. mean, yeah. I remember. Remember that? Yes. One? yes. I mean, so <laughs> we got we got so we got Jew Pond in New Hampshire. You got Redskins in Maine. I mean, get with the program. You know, there are certain things that just we now know that these words are not appropriate. So it's an education. It was totally appropriate. And as someone said, if one person was harmed by this, then guess what? It ain't worth it. And it really is. And you know what's interesting about this? It's interesting that sometimes it's not just about the words, but about the imagery that is is, uh, attached to the logos and the mascots. And that is where I think a lot of offense comes in that uh, we we had an issue down here with the the Nosset School District. Oh right, uh, yeah, another and, Indian. and the yeah. yeah big discussion. And of course, yeah. Nosset is is a, is a tribal name. Uh, exactly. They were the, they are in fact the Warriors. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion about whether or not they should change that name from the Warriors. And ultimately, did, they decided to keep the name but strike the imagery because that was um, cartoonish and offensive. And they felt mm-hmm. that they could you know still um, sort of celebrate a heritage. And in fact, there is a heritage here on the Cape Native. Americans, 
and uh, they they stuck with the name, got rid of the the uh, pictures, and uh, people seem to be pretty pleased with that controversy. Uh, and, the and they should have never welcomed the pilgrims. That was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you know, and here's the thing: the Redskins didn't have. There wasn't a connection. There wasn't a heritage. It wasn't the Warriors. You know, it was yeah. it was just a, a name that a lot of people picked up at some point in time. And yeah, they may have thought it was impressive and strong and powerful. It also was harmful. So guess what? In 2012, you change it. That's all. What are they changing it to, Arnie? I don't know if they know yet. Mm. I think that's okay. part of it. Mm. Is that they're still the Chinese. I mean, that, that's right. They're gonna. I mean, the, the question is, where do you go from there? I don't know. Maybe we'll, you know, uh, pick a nicer color, go pink. I don't know. But uh, they haven't. That the point isn't the change. The point. The point isn't what the next name is. The point is, can they live with the fact that they have to change the name? And that's and really it's where the It's going. interesting because we have this evolution in thinking because these school districts, you know, go back fifty years, a hundred years, and they, you know, have these sort of hanging on them. It, it's interesting when you can create a new school district, we have a new one, a regional district, two towns combining. So they're going through, they get to choose what the school district's name will be, what the mascot will be, the whole nine yards. And, you know, it's almost like washing the slate clean and getting to start over. And so uh, yeah. the towns of Chatham and Harwich uh, recently combined. They chose Monomoy, which has a lot of historic uh, importance here on the Cape as the name of the district. And guess what the mascot was? What? The shark. What? Mm. Okay. The shark. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, they feel they're in safe okay. territory there. I think so too. Yeah. I do want to point out uh, one thing from the story that I thought was quite interesting is because so much of the discussion and the back and forth had been about people not wanting to give up the culture or what they perceived mm-hmm. as a culture and the history. And they interviewed some of the uh, young people in the school now, and one and they said that this was representative of the young people. One young one person said, "I think it's shameful, and if just one person is offended, it's one too yeah. many." So. Right. Uh, the comments. current students. That are means all they've in taught favor. their children. They've taught their children well. Exactly. Think about it. It's the old people that are concerned. The alumni. It's the, it's, the old alumni it's the, exactly. over age fifty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. That's and true. it's 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 kind of like the gay issue. You know, you talk to your eighteen yeah. year old and they look at you going, "What's your problem?" But then you talk to the fifty eight year old and that's where the problem is. So I think what you're seeing here in the school is exactly the right evolution that should be taking place. And they've taught their kids well. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about uh, nuclear plants, uh, airport expansion, and all kinds of other stuff. We're looking at regional news with Paul Pronovo from Cape Cod, Arnie Arneson from New Hampshire, and Robert Whitcomb representing Rhode Island. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We love our contributors. That means you and the Boston Pops, led by Keith Lockhart and joined by Anne Hampton Calloway as they pay tribute to Barbara Streisand on Tuesday, May 15th and Wednesday, May 16th. More information at bostonpops.org. And Concord Lamp and Shade. We have customers coming into the store all of the time who will note that they heard our sponsorship on WGBH. Anne Eckert, owner either they're existing customers and we're happy that we were sponsoring, or um, they're new customers who came in as a result of listening to the sponsorship on GBH. To learn how WGBH can benefit your business, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. Morning Essentials. Good morning from the WGBH Radio Newsroom in Boston. I'm Bob C. with some of the local stories we're following. Start your day well informed. Two hours of local conversation beginning at noon today with a conversation at noon about UPIs or universal patient identifiers. A necessary Bob C. and Morning Edition on 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio. With more than 40 years under NPR's belt. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. There's now an entire generation of listeners who grew up. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. Listening to public radio from the backseat. If you're a member of the backseat generation, this year give mom her due with a shout out on the WGBH Facebook page. Just search for WGBH at Facebook.com. And to every public radio mom, thanks. Celtic music, best enjoyed with friends. Join me on Saturdays at 3 with the Celtic Sojourn on 89.7 WGBH.
Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're looking at the week's local news with Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor of the Providence Journal, and Arnie Arneson, a radio and TV commentator based in New Hampshire. So, Paul, you have a big piece in the Cape Cod Times about Governor Patrick joining a number of people uh, wanting a, a closer look at the safety issues at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station. Right, and this is an interesting story, and, and we were just talking about states' rights. Here's an issue where it seems like states' rights absolutely do not exist, just based upon the, the feedback that the state officials from the attorney general to the governor to the Senate president uh, receive from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, governor Patrick this week joined uh, what's been a growing chorus, really, of uh, local, state, and federal politicians calling for a harder look at uh, the safety issues surrounding Pilgrim. Uh, Pilgrim is uh, the plant uh, that is based in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's up for its 20-year license renewal. Uh, And the NRC has been looking at that and uh, been hearing a lot of concerns from, again, from all walks of life, uh, and yet they seem to be accelerating the relicensing process, which uh, is of concern to the governor and others. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Am I right about this? Hasn't haven't they been looking at this for seven years though? Hasn't the process been going on? I mean, I I thought I saw a seven year line in the story, Paul. And as I'm looking at it, there, there's no question. The same thing is just happening with Seabrook. You're seeing what's going on with Vermont right. Yankee over. So it's it's the standard. But the problem is one of the reasons why I think the public is very receptive to Deval Patrick's concern about this is that you know the Fukushima power plant story is in the back of everyone's head, and exactly. the fact that Japan now is not using one kilowatt from nuclear power has turned everything off, maybe not permanently, they're all supposedly like being examined or under review or whatever. But I think people are beginning to say, you know what, maybe the fact that they started reviewing this a couple of years ago, that was before Fukushima. Now you better review it with a different set of eyes and a different concern because we see the consequences of what happens. But that's I think 25% that's a... of the region's electric power, I believe. Yes. Not, not that plant, but nuclear in general. So it's a, yeah. it's a real economic challenge. We can do it, you know, burn more coal. We obviously we're getting more gas from fracking, but uh, you know where do we go? Exactly. Right, right. And, and the point Arnie raises is is obviously a great one. I mean, since Fukushima, obviously we've opened our eyes a great deal to the challenges with these plants. Um, not every nuke plant is is Fukushima, and, and we you exactly. know recognize that. In terms of asking the questions for years, that's true. They've been asking the questions for years. Seven I think years. what I think what frustrates many is that they're not getting answers. Uh, for example, wow. uh, they've been asking about the the spent fuel rods, which are not supposed to be stored in the great numbers that they are at Pilgrim. They're supposed to be shipped uh, to another site. Well, that's a national debate, and they've never really settled it. And so the spent fuel rods continue to sit there. In terms of an evacuation plan, I mean, uh, we, we here on Cape Cod, we joke there ain't no evacuation plan. If something happens <laughs> mm-hmm. at Pilgrim, where are you going to go? You're either going to swim out to sea or you're going to start to glow green. That's about all you can do. In fact, a few years ago, the state uh, started uh, having boards of health issue uh, pot- uh, potomium acid uh, iodine pills, which was supposed to counteract the effects of radiation in the event because, frankly, you can't get away. Uh, so, I mean, there are serious questions being asked here, but I think Bob put his finger also on, on a big challenge. A lot of power generated by this source, and uh, we'd, we'd have some real problems without it. And I think that's one of the issues, certainly, that the NRC is weighing. Well, and that's the and, same the situation in Japan as well. And, and exactly. we should also note that one of the reasons for the, the fear after Fukushima is that they supposedly had all the latest, the cutting-edge yes. safety yes. Yes. measures in place. Exactly. So they if they don't, the, you know, uh, yeah. They understated the height of the tidal wave. Right. Well, by, still, what, by 30% or something like that, it was much, much higher than they thought the highest one could be. Well, that's, well that may be true, but they were supposed to have, no matter what, you know, yeah. they, they had, were supposed to have their response. I want to mention Absolutely. that this license is up uh, uh, J- June 8th, which is why this conversation about who's in, who's against, has become a little bit more intense now, even though questions may have been asked uh, for many, many years. The, the 40-year-old plant's license expires June 8th. Now, it can continue to operate without uh, an extension, a formal extension, but that's that's what's at stake here. And the and government, you're, you're, the federal government, seems to have total power in this thing, the NRC and so on, right? I mean, legally, there's really nothing much the state can do, Paul, so far as can be. 
Exactly. I mean, getting back to the states' rights issues, I remember with um, uh, Terry Murray, the Senate president, was in our editorial board uh, maybe about six months ago, and and we came around to this issue, and and you could just see how frustrated she was at at the lack of information uh, that she could get. And uh, she she told this story about how she had sent a a list of questions that she had and expecting a a, a personal response. Uh, You know, she's got a lot of juice on Beacon Hill. And she got about an eight-page letter back in legalese. She had to have her staff go through it and try to figure out what the answers were. And essentially, the answers was no (laughs) to pretty much every question Mm. that she had to ask. And And it just speaks to some, you know, how little the state uh, officials have any, any power here. But you and I both know when people don't answer those questions and it's a public official supposedly there to protect the public with a fiduciary responsibility, it feels like cover-up. It feels like they're somehow tipping the scales on the benefit of the nuclear industry and not the public. And again, I go back to what you said, Callie. The reason why what happened in Japan is so frightening for us is the Japanese are methodical. They're they're anal when it comes to figuring out how do we escape, what do we do, how do we do this. They have they're good at technology. They are very they're good. Very good at it, yeah, and, and we're not engineers. And, yeah, That's right, yeah. and and yeah. and we're not. So again, one of the reasons why you want to ask all these questions is because you know our history is to be not as observant and to not be as aware. So why aren't you answering our questions? Is it because there isn't an answer, or you haven't taken that look? And that's mm-hmm. where I think public officials get very nervous. Well, let's move on to let's move on to something that's continuing to be an issue uh, down your way, particularly Paul Pronovo. But uh, now is up your way, uh, Arnie Arneson. So Derby Line, Vermont, and Stansted, Quebec are fighting about a wind project. Sounds really familiar. Oh, except except no, 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 let's no, no, make no. the point that uh, because the, these towns are so close, as a quote says in the article, people wake up in Quebec and eat breakfast in Vermont. So it's an international and a local issue. Well, I, I saw this story and I said, oh, I can't wait for Paul to read this one. This is like so, this is made for you, honey. This is like Cape Wind Redux. Mm-hmm. It's like unbelievable. And here we're talking about two little wind turbines and two little dairy farms in the most northern reaches of Vermont. And people would say, oh, but this is perfect. Nobody lives there. Who can be upset about it? Well, they forgot. There's a bunch of people in Quebec, right on the, on the, on the Quebec border. They are so upset because they're going, wait a minute. I bought a piece of land here so I could live in this rural, beautiful, rarefied area, and now I find out that right across the line in that other country, they're about to build a, like a 400-foot turbine. And part of what's driving this is, is this, this company out of Burlington wants to build these turbines because there's a real financial incentive to produce energy from things like wind, from alternatives, because that's how their Public Utilities Commission is now weighing electricity and weighing cost. And they so they want credits. to... You get you get credits, yeah, right. you get state, cost state, state benefits. And federal tax credits. Yeah. Well, well, what got everybody noticing this is when the mayor of Stansted, which is in in Canada, decided that he was going to threaten them by turning off the water for this little village in BB <laughs> Plain because apparently that they're so connected that they get their water from Canada. And as soon as everybody said, "Wait a minute, we can't exist without water," all of a sudden uh, the Derby Line selectmen said, "Okay, okay, we'll go on record saying we won't take any opinion on these two turbines. But it, it, it is a problem in that not in my backyard isn't just That's off the coast of the Cape. It's it's even on the most far and reaches where you think this would be the easiest thing to place, and yet it isn't. And part of the driver here is that it's a profit model. And the profit model is it's financially advantageous to produce energy sure. from wind. Not because it's the least costly, but because there's a greater incentive now because the Public Utilities Commission said, we'll pay you more. Hmm. And the complaint and, uh, is mostly aesthetic, Arnie? Yes. The complaint like They're exactly the same complaints that people exactly. have on the cake. It's, it's totally it. the same yeah. complaints. All right. Well, this time it's six cows. You know, it's I know. six cows and four people. <laughs> I, I just, just thought remember. it was interesting. Bad for your, bad for your ears. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All that. The whole thing. The birds. The whole nine yards. It's the same yeah. thing. So funny. All right. It's a, a Paul story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to our regional local news edition of Week in Review and our Under the Radar segment. I'm joined by radio and TV commentator Arnie Arneson, Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, and Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor 
of the Providence Journal. Uh, let's talk about some good news, uh, Robert Whitcomb. TF Green Airport finally is going to be expanded. This is going to be a big boon economically for Rhode Island. You bet. I think good for the region. It'll have really give the region a second major airport, I hope a second major ultimately international airport. There's been a big fight uh, by local residents who either just don't want to move or they want more money for their houses and their uh, their businesses to extend the runway so the airport can uh, can offer uh, flights directly to the, the West Coast. They now can go as far as like, Nevada and Arizona, but they can't go right to the Pacific. And uh, the, the this extended runway would permit that and flights to Europe, which would be pretty exciting. Uh, and I guess they're going to make some improvements to the terminal building and also. So, I mean, it is the middle of our little metro region here has got a couple of million people. So it would be nice to have that, you know, wider ability to serve people, especially this long distance stuff. So well, there's well, a little bit of I, excitement about that. I noted that uh, they recognized by messing around on this, because this decision has been going on for a while, that they really lost out to Manchester. Because Manchester yeah, was able to... Doing oh, very see, well. I hate this story. Yeah, yeah. I hate this story. <laughs> I bet you <laughs> Okay. I'm sitting well, here well, going, I, this is not a good news story. What are you talking about? <laughs> we love this story on the Cape, because oh, hallelujah. Uh, yeah. Anytime you can go to Green instead of going to Logan from, from southeastern Massachusetts, you're going to go. It's cheap, typically cheaper much less hassle getting to that airport. Yeah. Uh, coming from this direction, you have to fight Route 3 before you even get to the Southeast Expressway, before you even get into Logan traffic. It's really such a better option, so it's it's great to see this expansion. The only thing that holds it back right now is that it doesn't have as many options as Logan, and so it looks like they're they're going to be really competitive. All right. and I think for international stories. business around here, and you know, a lot of there are a lot yeah. of companies with international connections, especially in, in Western Europe. It'll be uh, great for that, and just great all around. I think great for New England. It'll take, you know, Boston doesn't really need that much more business. It's hellishly congested, and I think uh, federal aviation officials, among others, would would love it if Green could take up some of that. But you could be a day late, Robert. You know why? The EU may be bankrupt. You know, all yeah, those flights true. back and forth to the EU. That's I don't true. know. After Greece and Yeah, but France, people are always going to want to go West Coast and Travel. every place else. Yeah, so, right. you know, Absolutely. believe me. San Francisco, yeah. LA, all this They'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, Paul Pronovo, you got a couple of stories dealing with uh, fish that are just fascinating. Uh, one is about eel poaching, which I became aware of, speaking of Maine, too, because Maine is in, involved in this a little bit. Uh, uh, eels are very, very uh, precious food now and and uh, bringing in a tidy profit for those people. I first heard about eel catching in Maine, but now down the way on Cape Cod, there are poachers uh, doing this illegally. Yeah, this this surprised the heck out of me when I heard about this, and, and I guess I shouldn't have been uh, looking at what the prices uh, these eels fetch. Uh, you know, our reporter Doug Frazier spun this great tale about an environmental police officer going out at 2.30 in the morning, rolling down a long dirt road into the cr cranberry bogs, finally up to the Bellsnick uh, Conservation Area in, in Harwich, found two uh, folks near the river. Now, at 2.30 in the morning, Generally speaking, there are only so many options for folks out there, late night revelers, you know, that sort of thing. But in this case, it, were po it was poachers, uh, two guys who have, uh, basically were dipping into uh, the water source and pulling out uh, glass eels, uh, which are sort of a juvenile, uh, a tiny transparent little eel that fetches, get this, $2,000 a pound. Uh, so, you know, this is oh, big, yeah, big like money. Or so, or something. Yeah. It, really, I mean, it's, it's among now, you know, these, these trendy, high-priced things. And uh, so uh, particularly on, on the Asian market, uh, they, they can fetch big money. Uh, and, in fact, I, I think the, the story was that uh, from $2,000 worth of these glass eels, you can generate about $20,000 worth of sales on the Asian market by, because basically aquaculturists in, in Asia will take these in, grow them, multiply them, and, and expand. So uh, not surprising that when you have uh, that kind of uh, those kinds of dollars, you're going to have uh, a, a business set up. And, and you're not supposed to take the eels, so the business is illegal, and it's poaching. And, and really, the problem now is that the environmental police um, have been losing, I think, about 33% of their staffing over five years, right. economy being what it was, cutbacks, and uh, they really are up against it trying to uh, trying to stop this. 
are these endangered, Paul? I mean, what, what's the long-term ecological effects of, of this sort of thing, this poaching going on? Could these things disappear? I know they, they spawn in the Sargasso Sea, which is very romantic, but I mean, what, <laughs> is it a matter of an endangered species? Not at this point, but the numbers are dropping uh, pretty dramatically, and I think that's the long-term concern, of course, is that, in fact, they will literally disappear, and that will upset uh, you know, the balance of... Uh, the ecosystem here on the Cape and elsewhere. And so they're really trying to bring that back. Um, I think uh, federal authorities are, are a little bit slow in catching up with this, and largely because the price tag has, has just exploded. So it was in only just in two years. That's right. It's, it's changed. $185 in 2010 to 2000 exactly. in 2012. Exactly. My God, don't invest in gold and silver. Invest in eels. <laughs> what are we doing? You know, yeah. I'm listening to this story. And not only that, but the other. I think the other problem that you mentioned, Callie, you said Maine is part of the story. Yeah. I think Maine right. is a big problem right. in this story is that it's the only nearby state which you can actually legally harvest these eels. So that means if you need a place to dump them, if you need a place to look like you're doing it legally, you grab mm-hmm. them in Massachusetts and you bring them up to Maine and you say, okay, I'm legal now. But no, you didn't legally catch them off the coast of Maine. So Maine is really uh, pivotal in this story because it makes part of the problem uh, really obvious. You have a legal place to actually sell them. Well, I want to put a button on this because I want to hit this last one in remaining time. But just so people understand, saffron is $1,500 per pound, glass (laughs) eels $2,000, just so you understand. They're great together. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, they're great together. All right. Well, now, Paul Pronovo, Another uh, uh, fish story down your way. Uh, and this is very serious. This is a, a Vibrio. Is that how you pronounce it? Bacteria? Uh, vibrio bacteria. Okay. Yeah. This is very scary. It grows uh, it, it naturally in, in shellfish that are um, exposed to water temps that are hover around 80 degrees. Um, as anyone who's taken a dip on around the Cape knows that that doesn't happen very often. Uh, the water is pretty chilly. And oyster harvesting is, is a really big business down here. Um, problem is that in the tidal flats of Cape Cod Bay in particular, uh, the shellfish are exposed to direct sunlight. Uh, if you're a, a shell fisherman, harvesting them can take several hours, so they can begin to cook. And this is something that uh, both the state and federal health authorities have uh, just this past week brought to the attention of Cape Shell Fishermen and said, this is an issue that we're going to need to address pronto before the summer season. I think it caught a lot of people off guard. It, it Last summer, several people uh, contracted uh, uh, basically a food poisoning from this Vibrio bacteria. And as uh, Susan Condon at, at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health said, this is not just a, a, a little sickness. These were people who were very, very sick, some hospitalized, one close to death. So they're taking it very seriously. Um, having said all that, I want to stress that the folks down here take great care in, in harvesting the shellfish, making sure they meet all the standards. And since the story broke, there's been a lot of concern of what damage it could cause to their business. And uh, so I want to recognize that. And, and they certainly uh, are, are learning of this problem and are looking to address it. At, so the Paul, people got sick, just to be clear, at the Wellfleet Oyster Fest. So this is big, you know, this is a really an impact on the business, as you've just said. But also people need to know about it because uh, these, the folks that got sick were near death. Absolutely. And, and I just and, uh, need to let you, I just, I just drove back from New Orleans. You know how many oysters I was eating in New Orleans, yeah. honey? I'm so glad I read this story after I came back. Because <laughs> if there's a problem off the cake. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. They're not, they're, they're, they're pickled. They're safe. They're safe. So as well, I'm, actually, I'm reading this story, uh, Louisiana has a worse problem because it's much hotter down there. You can find 80 degree water down there. And, you know, and oysters is a big industry for them as well. And they've had a lot more problems than you've ever experienced up around the Cape. All right, that's going to be the, that's going to be the last word this uh, week uh, for some you know interesting <laughs> news from all of you guys. We've been talking regional news with Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times, radio and TV commentator Arnie Arneson in New Hampshire, and Robert Whitcomb, the vice president and editorial page editor of the Providence Journal. Thank you all. Thank Thanks you. Have a good weekend. All right. Bye-bye. Coming up, we're taking a turn from the serious to the sublimely ridiculous with a tour of this week's tabloids. You're listening to WGBH Boston Public Radio.
Funding for our programs comes from you. Ann Greenberg Traurig, an international law firm with offices in Boston and more than 30 other cities worldwide, addressing the complex legal needs of businesses from startups to public companies. Global reach, local resources. GTLaw.com. And Wind River Environmental, providing septic, grease, and drain cleaning services that can help keep your home and your business running smoothly. Your septic and grease pumping service experts. WREnvironmental.com. And the members of the WGBH Sustainer Program, whose gifts of $5, 10 or $20 a month make up the most reliable income for the programs you love on 89.7. Learn more about sustaining membership at WGBH.org. On the next Fresh Air, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Fresh Air's debut as a daily NPR program. We'll listen back to highlights of Fresh Air concerts, including performances by Richard Thompson, John Doe, Shirley Horn, Nick Lowe, and Susanna McCorkle. And we'll have a little Name That Voice guessing game. Happy anniversary to us on the next Fresh Air. This afternoon at 2 here on 89.7 WGBH. It's time for the 47th annual WGBH auction. It's your chance to take advantage of some great deals on home furnishings, electronics, jewelry, fine dining, unforgettable getaways, and even a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealers. And every winning bid supports the programs you depend on from WGBH radio and television. Bid high, bid often, and keep coming back for daily features. It's all online at auction.wgbh.org. New teaching tools are helping students take charge of their own learning. So a lot of this is learning at your own pace. Innovative programs for inner city students on Innovation Hub, Saturday morning at 7 here on 89.7 WGBH. Ragtime, a view of the week's coverage in tabloids. It's an examination of the salacious, the ridiculous, and everything in between. But this being public radio, we'll conduct our review with the help of some highbrow analysts. Thomas Connolly, a professor of English at Suffolk University, and Rachel Rubin, chair of the Department of American Studies at UMass Boston. Welcome back, you two. Hello again. Well, we lost somebody who was pretty well known in the children's uh, book field, uh, even though he himself, Maurice Sendak, did not consider himself to be a children's book author. He died at 83. Uh, I think uh, he was kind of grumpy, cranky, but wonderful all at the same time and best known for his book, uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Let's listen to a little of Maurice Sendak. Here he is talking to Stephen Colbert about the art of writing a best-selling book. What's it take for a celebrity to make a successful book? What do well, I got to do? Well, you started already by being an idiot. <laughs> that is already the very first demand. Okay, that's right. Idiot. First is idiot. How do you spell that? <laughs> After that... You know the formula. You just need, like, an animal and something they've lost. Well, yes. I mean, most books for children are very bad. Yeah, squirrel lost their mittens. There you go. The <laughs> buffalo you, lost just, its gun. You've just written two children's books. <laughs> I just love him. And if anybody hasn't heard the full interview with uh, Stephen Colbert, it's worth your time. It's pretty funny. Uh, yeah. He didn't take himself too seriously, Tom. <laughs> it's priceless. And he, I mean, he really takes up not just children's books, but celebrity culture, illustrations, the, the decline of the book as a cultural artifact. It's really extraordinary. And uh, he really plays off Colbert very well. Um, Where the Wild Things Are is, for many reasons, interesting in that it presents the world of fear that children embrace, the way that children like to be scared. You know, even adults like to be scared. But <clears throat> I can remember being fascinated by this book. I saw it as a sort of a you know, things to come, a, a, an ad for it, but I wasn't able to get my hands on it until I was a little too old to really mm. appreciate it. And when by the time I read it, it was like nothing else I'd ever read as a child. And uh, Sendak's books are all like that. He's, there's no one else like him. One series of illustrations, though, that I do remember from one of the very first books I ever remember reading uh, was a book, Little Bear, which he just mm. did the illustrations for, which... Even though this is a very innocent story about a bear cub and his mother, I remember the Victorian furnishings and the heavy costume the, the mother was wearing struck me 
I don't know why, perhaps I have a morbid sensibility, <laughs> as vaguely sinister. <laughs> there was something not comforting about the way the mother was hugging him, which to me, years later, just alerts me to what he was trying to do, which was to say the world is not a safe place. Also, let, let children recognize that the world is not a safe place and deal with it on their own. What do you think, Rachel? Well, you know, absolutely. And I think there's, there are plenty of children who are very disturbed by some of his books, The Night Kitchen in particular. But, um, you know, Sendak always said that he had no childhood because his family was so obsessively involved with tracking down relatives of theirs that had been killed in the Holocaust. So, you know, it, it, it comes across, you know, as very poignant that then he did sort of play a role in the childhoods of lots of other people who, you know, grew up after him. But it also made Makes sense that there is this sort of streak of darkness through all of the books. One of the things that I, I read since his passing that just struck me as so wonderful because, uh, as is demonstrated in the in the Stephen Colbert exchange, he was very self-aware and and just you know was comfortable with being self-aware even in uh, even in thinking about things that other people would be uncomfortable thinking about. So Terry Gross uh, on her program Fresh Air asked him about how he felt about dying because he was 83 when he died and he said, "I will miss many beautiful things here on earth, but I am ready. I am ready." I am ready. And I thought, wow, what a mature person and one who felt he had contributed here uh, and and was, you know, comfortable mm -hmm. with, with that. I, I just thought that said something about him in a, in a uh, more expansive way. Anyway. He was, I was just going to say he was also, especially for somebody who wrote children's books, he was out as gay, you know, yes. quite That's early right. and That's quite right. sort of calmly and self-knowingly also. All part and part. Maurice Sendak dead at 83 this week. So we lost another iconic figure this week, uh, Vidal Sassoon. Now, for some people, maybe they won't uh, remember him, but he they'll remember his products, if nothing, because they're still being sold everywhere. He was a hairstylist, and he made his name by creating the modern Bob. So before we talk about him, here is Vidal Sassoon on NPR's Fresh Air. Again, Terry Gross gets all these people. In this clip, he's giving the backstory on the haircut he gave Mia Farrow that launched his megabuck career. Mia, out of some fit of pique, I'm not sure what it was all about, but she was married to Mr. Sinatra at the time, had cut into her own hair. She came to the salon and said, what can you do for me? I said, take it very short. That's the only way. I can't pull the short hair long, but I can cut the long hair short. And we did it, and it suited her marvelously because she had a shaped face and bone structure that was just perfect. Well, what'd you think, Rachel? <laughs> well, it's interesting that the haircut that uh, she got was for her role in Rosemary's Baby, which is just a really, really dark meditation on gender and domesticity. Um, it's very interesting because, you know, the, the haircut that he became most known for was known that it was, you know, supposed to be lower maintenance than the elaborate stuff women had been having to their, um, done to their hair before then. And then sort of, you know, you, you were quite rightly referred to that said that people would remember the products. So then very quickly, it became sort of a line of products that you would sell to maintain this new kind of hairstyle. And you see this like what became really familiar, yoking together of the idea of liberation with the idea of consumerism. And even in the Globe's obituary, you know, of him this week, it, it linked it, um, linked him, his, his work as a hairdresser with women's liberation. Mm. Um, and maybe that's because, you know, so much of uh, his name uh, came together in the 60s when yes. a lot of this was going on, Tom. And again, I want to mention Rosemary's Baby. When she comes back from Vidal Sassoon, that's, a, that's the moment in the film that coincides with our knowledge in the audience that she's in the midst of a coven of witches. Mm. And it's interesting that she heard the line, she said, well, it's very in. We know that she's in big trouble. <laughs> it's also interesting to think that somehow Frank Sinatra is behind this because he didn't want her to do that movie and the quarrel they had was over. He wanted her to drop that to take a, a secondary role in a film of his. And his slogan, uh, Vidal Sassoon's slogan, if you don't look good, we don't look good. This is perfect integration of branding from salon to product to look. And this is something we absolutely take for granted now. But he really, he really created modern hairstyling and modern modern 
coiffeur product movement. So it's, it's, he's really a, a, a very important figure for fashion and for business modeling. I'm glad you brought up that uh, expression, if we don't look good, you don't look good, because it's really turned out sort of like L'Oreal, you know, Am I Too Beautiful, whatever. These are some of the iconic advertising statements about products that have just stuck with people cross-generationally mm -hmm. and, and been effective cross-generationally. Well, speaking of uh, good looks, uh, this week, <laughs> Chanel number five, uh, announced that one of their new spokespersons is Brad Pitt. Now, this is a departure from uh, the way they've advertised this perfume before. It's always been uh, women, uh, some most noted one, Catherine Deneuve, Nicole Kidman, and Audrey Tattoo, uh, all French, um, well, except for Nicole Kidman. And <laughs> so they've gone a different way. But I just want to remind people what the one of the latest Chanel ads sounds like. This is from an ad directed by Baz Luhrmann, starring Nicole Kidman. It's beautiful up here. Everything seems so peaceful. Who are you? I'm a dancer. <laughs> I love to dance. It didn't matter. I knew who she was to me. Now, Rachel, I particularly hate that ad because I like the old iconic ones where they touted the perfume, all this breathing and who am I dancing around? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about any of it. You know, the new ad, we're showing its success because we're doing its work by talking about it. I but know. There you go. Um, the only, you know, the thing that really struck me, I have to say, about Brad Pitt's ad was the uh, repeated reporting that for appearing in the ad, he has received some um, compensation in seven digits. Wow. Seven digits. So if you think about that, it just it's like it's 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 a, a reminder from above of the sort of wealth disparities that we've been focused on culturally this past year. And it's always true that in economic recessions like this, really highly priced luxury goods, their sales go up. Because, you know, the money is going, you know, both up, you know, the money is sort of mm -hmm. moving further up. So do you think uh, Chanel number no. five is trying to break out in some way with this, Tom? Yes. Uh, Break out of water. A, a, a I don't know. Uh, you a know. scruffy, <laughs> unshaven man who has a, a past history of massive marijuana intake. I can only imagine where Coco Chanel is. I mean, if she were, if she was as bad she's, a collaborator as she she's thinks, dancing she's, in with hot, the Nazis. she's in a hot place. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, otherwise, um, but this is trying, you know, Chanel number no. five, I mean, supposedly Noel Coward wore it during World War II. So, I mean, there is a sort of, you know, ambiguous sexuality oh, in I its history. Oh, I Okay. But the idea that, the, the, you know, the picture they're, they're using to, to show the publicity picture of him is so counter to Catherine Deneuve and the cool elegance. Uh, they're definitely trying to, to, to attract uh, people who would find, you know, an unshaven, ill-kempt man attractive. This is a radical break with what Chanel Number no. 5 stands for. Yeah, well, well, we'll see if it works. I, stands uh, for money, Thomas. Yeah, well, that's I think true. they're going to do okay. <laughs> well, uh, this week... The people won, so to speak, of one of the people who <laughs> song, songwriter, uh, Victor Willis, best known for co-author of a very famous tune called YMCA, because that was part of the group uh, The Village People. And we'll talk about it on the other side of the break, but just to get in the mood, and it's Friday and we must have a little jam. So here is classic vi Village People. Young man, there's a place you can go, I said young man. We're dancing, Rachel. <laughs> We're dancing. Because it's so great. Uh. It's a great, great, great jam. And I just have to say, I just love, it, it just shows you how wonderfully music, in particular pop music um, and pop culture in general, can operate on more than one level. You know, because like, Children do this dance at camp, right? And yet the song is about camp a meet. Is the place for the song is a yes, exactly. The song is a is a you know talking about very joyously about a meeting place for gay men. So mm. um, it's really wonderful that the victory he got his um, rights to uh, the authorship of the song back. Um, it it reminds me of you know what Chuck D, the rapper, is often quoted as saying, which is you know own your masters or the master will mm. own you, mm. right? And so um, you know I, it really is a victory. It reminds us in all these um, 
discussions of, of file sharing and stuff that we're having right now that the music industry is not defending the artist's rights when it fights those things. And and this, you know, there was a long period that we know about where artists, very young, signed over rights, and then later on these hits, as YMCA has become, transgenerational, lots of money, and they can't claim anything, Tom. This is mm. it's fascinating to me, reading the legal argument, which is online, with the, the judge rejecting one contention after another of the music publisher, and uh, uh, the village people's arguments being taken, yes, 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 they're right, this is so unusual, that for one the artists are able to cash in on a technicality, or rather, get the money that's legitimately theirs right. based on legal technicalities. It's, it's, it's that th that makes it all the sweeter for me because we we all have seen cases where artists have been f found out. You know, they signed something they didn't know they were signing. Mm -hmm. They were manipulated. But here, it's the publishers that have been mani manipulated, and I'm cheering for them. And a lot, a mm -hmm. lot of times, I was going to say, a lot of times, the artists not only signed away ownership to the songs, but they were forced to give writing credits or co-writing credits. Mm -hmm. to producers. Yeah, so this is this is going to have an impact all through the music industry. I'll be interested to there see are, as yeah, other cases are already, cases lining are already up, up to do on, it. On the precedent. Now, ju just yeah. when you think that there can be no mo more other uses for tweeting, uh, we find out that a Houston neurosurgeon live-tweeted brain surgery this week. What do you think about that, Tom? <laughs> I am wondering what the impetus for it was. I mean, su supposedly it's, it's educational, but I also wonder if... I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was some commercial tie-in, that somehow somebody was making money off of this, because I can't see the second-by-second -second benefit of watching this via Twitter or Facebook, um, other than just, you know, self-aggrandizement. I mean, if, if you want to watch this on, on uh, uh, you know, a, a podcast, mm -hmm. that's one thing, but getting the publicity for this and the way that it was done, the way that it was released as, you know, through through a, a publicity office makes me highly suspicious. Mm -hmm. You know, that, you know, now even open, open heart surgery, open uh, skull surgery is on the block. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Rachel? Well, yeah, they did tweet, live tweet, open heart surgery last month. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not just suspicious. It's like clearly turning, you know, turning surgery into at least for some people a kind of entertainment, which it already is. There have been a few television shows that where you get to like watch people have plastic surgery, right, in, the, in a way that's like part gross out and part titillating. So I think this follows along with that. I much prefer um, Twitter's, you know, been in the news um, recently also for refusing to hand over tweets of Occupy Wall Street mm. organizers, you know, when, when they're being subpoenaed, so arguing for the privacy of that. So mm. I like that <clears throat> news making better than this one. It's also bizarre. Over a decade ago, Richard Schechner, the founder of Performance Theory, started writing about open-heart surgery on the basis that it's performed in an operating theater mm. as a possible, and I always scoffed at this, but I have to admit he was right. Well, <laughs> one thing I want to make clear, the doctor who was performing, performing the surgery was not doing the tweeting. He had a colleague <laughs> doing that's the true. tweeting. Yeah, that's, 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 clear. that's very that important. A, he, he, did, he did take a break and answer his cell phone. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor Thomas Connolly of Suffolk University, Professor Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston for another edition of Ragtime. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley Show at wgbh.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley Show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Alan Mattis, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH Boston Public Radio. <laughs>